1, and we'll read the verses 12 through 32. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew 21, beginning at verse 12, and we pick up directly after the triumphal entry. And here we have the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, Have you never read out of the mouth of babes or infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. So far from Matthew, and we'll now turn forward to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read the verses 4 through 12.
1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So far, we will now stand and sing Psalm 118, verses 1 and 4. Congregation, the text for our sermon this afternoon comes to us from Matthew 21, the verses 33 through to the end, verse 46. And there we find the, what is commonly known as the parable of the tenants. And it picks up where we left off in Matthew 21, verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first and that they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the, the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived 
that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So far. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think of when you think of the cross? In the midst of our commercialized culture, many in this world have little knowledge of its true significance. To them, it's nothing more than a pendant on a chain that hangs around their neck. For others who have perhaps a very basic understanding of Christianity. It may connect them to their Christian roots. They may even understand that the cross symbolizes the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who arose from the dead victorious over sin and Satan. And even the most nominal and superficial who identify with the cross may understand that this victory was necessary for salvation. And they want to share in the benefits of what our Lord and Savior did when he died on that cross. As do we all. But beloved, if the cross is reduced to simple association with the Christian church, can I legitimately expect to claim our Lord and Savior Jesus to be my own? To be my Lord and Savior. Isn't this expectation rather optimistic? For those of us who have a more mature understanding of Scripture, we should know better. God has called us to do more than acknowledge his death and victory on the cross. But to live out of that knowledge. Consider what he's done. He suffered and he died the shameful death, being despised and put to shame. He gave his very life for us. Surely that deserves more than our superficial acknowledgement of what he's done. The message of the cross needs to transform us. It needs to change our way of life. And how is it with us who attend the worship services regularly, who are familiar with the message of the cross? Is it? Is it transforming our lives? Has it changed us? Are we bearing fruit in our day-to-day life in a response of thankfulness for what Christ has accomplished on the cross? Because there is another side to the message of the cross that we often overlook. God's judgment. We are very eager to embrace Christ's victory. But Christ also warned the Jewish leaders in the week leading up to his death on Good Friday. The judgment would follow the death of God's Son. And the reason that Christ announced this judgment was because the Jewish church leaders refused to give God the fruit that he was due. And that message is still relevant for us today, brothers and sisters. Therefore, I preach to you God's word under the following theme and points. God laid the foundation of a church that will bear fruit And we see God patiently waits for the church to bear fruit. Secondly, God judges the church that does not bear fruit. And thirdly, 
we see that God ensures the church will bear fruit. To fully appreciate the significance of the parable of the wicked tenants, we need to place it squarely in its context. At the beginning of Matthew 21, we read the account of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And following Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, he clears the temple. And then in Matthew 21, verse 18, it relays to us the subsequent day when Jesus curses the fig tree. The Gospel writer Mark indicates that it was on the next day the disciples observed the withered tree in the morning as they went up to Jerusalem. They were going up to the temple. And then the other events of our reading follow. And so Jesus tells our parable on the Tuesday of the week leading up to his death. We read that he entered the temple courts and was busy teaching the people. The chief priests and the elders who days before had witnessed the triumphal entry and the clearing of the temple were indignant with this Jesus. Matthew 21 verse 15 recalls that when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The people acknowledged Jesus as the messianic king, the son of David. But this claim by the people left the leaders resentful of our Lord and Savior. How could he allow the people to claim that he was the Messiah? And now here was this Jesus teaching in the temple courts. And so they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? The question betrays what's in their hearts. They do not want to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. But the evidence was clear. And Jesus presses the point home by asking them where the authority of John the Baptist had come from. The people had come to the right conclusion. John's authority was from heaven. But again, the leaders did not want to accept this conclusion. And so Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer. But he tells them a number of parables in order to make his point. And in the parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus wants to point out to the leaders of Israel that God had made a tremendous investment in the Jewish nation. He compares God to a landowner who planted a vineyard. In the ancient world, establishing a vineyard required a significant outlay of money and resources. First, it was necessary to plant and groom the vines. Second, it was common to build a rock wall and a watchtower to keep out unwanted animals or those who might try to steal fruit from the vineyard, or worse, to seize the whole vineyard by force. Finally, a wine press was constructed where the produce of the land could be processed into wine. The owner's investment would take a, a minimum of three years to begin to produce a return. The vines would need to grow and mature before a significant harvest of grapes could be expected. And in all this time, the landowner would have nothing to show in return for his investment. And often the landowner did not tend the vineyard itself. It was common practice to make an arrangement with some tenants to care for the vineyard. Such contractual agreements usually set out 
that the tenants would give a certain amount of the fruit or wine to the landowner as rent. The remaining fruit would be the tenant's pay. Often unscrupulous landlords would set the rent very high so that the tenants would have little return for all their hard work. And the tenants usually had little recourse against the rich and powerful landowner. So when disagreements arose between the tenant and the landowner, it was often because of a hard and uncaring landlord. But in Jesus' parable, we observe something quite different. The tenants are the ones who are acting in an unethical manner. In fact, the scene being described defied credibility. If it had really happened that the tenants had refused the terms of their contract, it would not have taken long for the rich landowner to have these tenants expelled. And so the picture being painted shows a group of tenants that really hadn't thought through the repercussions of their actions. They had the audacity to defy the landlord repeatedly, even though he was in a position to have them arrested, even punished. But it shows us something about the landowner. He is patient. He suffers their insults time and again in the hope that the tenants will see their error and give him the fruit that he deserved. Many servants had been sent to collect the agreed-upon rent only to be mistreated, beaten, or killed. And in spite of all of that, the owner did not treat them as their actions warranted. And finally, he decides to send his son with the thought that they will respect him. The word translated as respect has as the Greek root to turn. And so the landowner is confident that sending his son would be sufficient to turn these villains from their evil path. And so respect the heir of the vineyard. But what do they do instead? They kill him with the misguided thought that they could take the inheritance for themselves. Congregation. Isaiah 5 verse 7 reminds us that the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And so this parable is describing the reality of the Old Testament church, God's vineyard. The Lord had invested deeply in the people of Israel. He had called them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He had guided them by His covenant promises, giving them the tabernacle and the temple with the sacrifices that pointed to Jesus Christ. We also heard about this morning. He promised them salvation. Out of all the nations upon the face of the earth, He had singled them out and raised them up to be His people. But what did they do? They killed the prophets and the priests who came in the name of the Lord to receive the fruit of thankful service that He required. The leaders refused to recognize their authority. And yet our God was patient and long-suffering. And so in our reading we see the sun coming to the vineyard, to the leaders of Israel, the tenants. And we recognize that this was an undeserved mercy. And do they recognize His authority? Many of the common people did, but the chief priests and the elders refused, to ask, refused asking the question, by what authority are you doing these things? 
They were indignant that the people had recognized him as the Christ, the Son of God. And don't we also experience this same undeserved mercy? God sent his own Son for you and for me. Do we recognize his authority? You see, brothers and sisters, our thankful service begins when we recognize God's authority in our lives. When we see Jesus for who he really is, the Son of God. And how does that affect who I am and how I live? Yes, we can be very religious, but yet so obstinate in our service. Are we ready and willing to recognize the authority of the ones God has placed over us? The elders and the deacons of this church? Or more importantly, the call of Christ himself given through the proclamation of the gospel? It's not surprising that Jesus tells the parable of the two sons on the heels of this question about authority. Many sinners had initially failed to recognize God's authority, living a life of sin. But later, they turned to him as a result of John's preaching. But not the leaders. They who claimed to respect the law and the prophets failed to listen to John. And worse than that, they failed to respect God's own son. And Jesus tells them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and prostitutes enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. We too, beloved, are in a covenant relationship that obligates us to respond in faith. God is calling us to recognize the authority of the Son and to produce fruit in keeping with that truth. The leadership of Israel refused. Listen to the Lord's words of judgment found in Isaiah 5. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done by my vineyard, to my vineyard, that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. And that brings us to our second point. God judges the church that bears no fruit. Beloved, in spite of the landowner's patience, his goodwill towards the wicked tenants could not sustain this final offense. They refused to respond in good faith to the terms of their contract and now had killed his son. The response of the landowner is predictable. And Jesus poses the question, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And you will notice, congregation, who answers. From verse 23 forward, Jesus is speaking to the chief priests and to the elders. They are the ones who answer the question in verse 41. They respond, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. The chief priests and elders of Israel declared the death penalty for those wicked tenants and acknowledged the justice of the landlord in giving the vineyard to another. The irony of it all is that the religious leaders had indicted themselves. God is patient, 
but he is also holy and just. And they knew it. Jesus is putting it in terms they would understand. Implicitly, he's telling them, You have not recognized me, the Son of God, the Christ. John spoke of me and the people believed, but you didn't. I came with miraculous signs and wonders, healing the sick, blind, and lame, declaring the coming of the kingdom of God. Again, the people recognized me, crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Son has come to receive the fruit from his Father's vineyard. And Jesus knows that they will refuse to render to God the fruit he deserves, that they will kill the Son. And this final offense of killing the Son will not be overlooked. Judgment was coming for Israel. And following the establishment of the New Testament church, we see the fulfillment of God's judgment with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 and with the dispersing of the Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire. And then Jesus challenges them and asks the question, Have you never read in Scripture? In other words, Jesus is saying, You are the teachers of Scripture who know what has been written. How come the common people can see it? But you can't. There's no excuse. You've read the Scriptures, haven't you? And Jesus reminds them of what they have read. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a quote from Psalm 118, and is typically understood to be the messianic king of Israel, who celebrates his victory over his enemies, those who had rejected him as king. This victory ensured a king on the throne of Israel, a cornerstone or foundation for the Jewish nation. And it pointed to a future when the true messianic king would be victorious over all his enemies and establish a new world order built upon a new and better kingship. A church chosen to everlasting life of all tribes and all nations. Jesus is declaring that by their rejection, a new and better future would come for the church. His death on the cross was part of God's plan for a marvelous new future. But many would not share in that future. With Christ's death and resurrection, a cornerstone would be laid that would have a twofold effect. Either you will build upon that stone as your foundation in faith, or you will fall upon that stone in disbelief and be broken. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here we have an allusion to a clay pot. The church or the people who fail to recognize Christ as the foundation are like a clay pot that will be broken when it falls upon a stone or crushed to pieces when a stone falls upon it. And given this twofold effect, beloved, we need to ask an important question. What then does it mean to build upon the foundation of Christ? Our text says, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah. The people had proclaimed it on Palm Sunday. John the Baptist had preached it. And Jesus himself implies it, that he is the cornerstone, the messianic king. The scriptures attested to this truth. All the evidence stood accusing them that they 
were the unfaithful tenants because they failed to recognize his authority and give him the fruit of faithful service. Truly recognizing Christ means that I live in the knowledge that Jesus is my king, placing my faith and trust in the one sacrifice he made on the cross and building upon that as my cornerstone. And that should be a warning for us, brothers and sisters. We can show up twice on Sunday. We can know the scriptures from front to back. We can even pay lip service to God's word, but fail to recognize the authority of the Son in my life from day to day. You may even know that what you hear Sunday after Sunday is the truth, that the message of the gospel accuses you, even condemns you. But in your pride, you refuse to confess your sin and take up your cross and follow him. Our text warns us, The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That was the fate of the Jews who paid lip service to God's word, but refused to believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's be clear, beloved. The disobedience of the Jews back then, or the disobedience of the church today, will reap the Lord's righteous judgment. But there is something that it will not and cannot do. Our disobedience will not thwart God's plan. It will not alter the Lord's plan for his vineyard. In the face of all opposition, he will ensure that the church bears fruit. And that brings us to our third point. God ensures the church will bear fruit. Jesus makes his point more clearly in verse 43 where he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The word translated as people can also be translated as nation. The nation or people to whom this text is referring is the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we read in 1 Peter chapter 2? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When the tenants kill the son, they forfeit any right to the vineyard. The vineyard will be given to others who will produce fruit because the Jewish leaders refused to recognize the son's authority, denying God the father the fruit that he was entitled to. They would send the son to his death on the cross, and the kingdom would be taken away. But Jesus would rise from the dead, the son who would become the chief cornerstone, the foundation of a new and better nation, the New Testament church. And what does that mean for us, beloved? 1 Peter 2 verse 4 reminds us that we come to a living stone. And isn't that the message of the cross? That Jesus our Savior, though he died, yet he lives. Death did not have the power to keep him. He arose glorious and victorious. The foundation of the New Testament church. 1 Peter 2 goes on to teach us that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, because he lives. 
we too can live. I was dead in my sin and misery, but now I live in Christ, a living member of his church, a building block resting upon the foundation he laid upon his resurrection. And so we need to ask the question, does that describe me? Am I alive in Christ? Simple mental assent is not a living faith. James makes it clear, faith without works is dead. Showing up on Sunday, but refusing to confess my sin, not recognizing Christ's authority in my day-to-day life, will make Christ a stumbling block for me. As he was for the Jewish leadership, beloved, the power of the cross is that it makes the dead live. The worst of all sinners can have life in Christ by submitting to him, acknowledge his authority, and give him the fruit of thankful service for what he has done on the cross. And you will share in the victory, the victory of life. And you will be joined as a member, a living member of the church of all times and places in eternity. Beloved, our Heavenly Father ensured that he would receive fruit from his vineyard by sending his son to die the horrible death on the cross so that he could defeat death through his glorious resurrection and become the foundation of a living house. Build upon that foundation, and you shall live. Our reading in Peter says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen.